From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A ban's in effect for civilian federal employees on all travel that isn't mission critical. Acting Office of Management and Budget Director Russ Vogt says agency leaders will decide what counts as mission critical. NextGov reports the memo from Vogt says travel to agencies with a community spread of coronavirus should only happen when there's an urgent need. The Office of Personnel Management's telling insurers in the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program to cut costs of treatment for the coronavirus. House Homeland Security Committee Chairman Benny Thompson wants the Department of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services to explain how they're implementing response efforts. GovExec reports Thompson also asked about federal employees who've contracted the disease. The White House wants more funding for the Defense Department, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Department of Homeland Security because of the coronavirus. The Office of Management and Budget will ask Congress for the money this week. Politico reports an emergency spending bill earlier this month included some of the additional funding. The Office of Management and Budget says federal agencies should offer employees maximum telework flexibilities because of the outbreak. The guidance for federal contractors isn't as clear. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. Stan, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. What are you seeing in these relationships between agencies and contractors and the guidance that, that agencies are giving out? Well, I mean, there's, we're just starting to see the guidance, so it's too early to make any judgments or or, or so forth, but and I've seen a couple of agency guidance, and they've actually had slightly different tones. Uh, one was very much a very legalistic and correct technically, which I have no problem with. But I think one of the challenges with it is that it doesn't really, I think, evince the kind of uh, environment that we're in. You know, if it doesn't really talk about this is a, a unique situation, so it's going to take unique levels of collaboration and cooperation rather than just saying you are responsible for performance, you're responsible for this. It's really Let's work together to figure these things out. That said, obviously contractors are responsible. I mean, they have a lot of responsibilities here. I saw other guys that came out and said, we recognize that this is a difficult situation. We're gonna do everything we can to work with you to, to work it out in an equitable way. So it's, it's a mixed bag and it's just getting started. I've been looking at this or thinking about this over the last couple of days, Stan, kind of like the shutdown where there are more questions than answers at any particular time and there's no end game. We don't know a date certain that this is all gonna change. Is that maybe a wise way to think about this given the fact that unfortunately, we've had so much experience with that thing in the last couple of months, years? Yeah, I, I think it's, there's, there's, you can look at partly as a shutdown and maybe combine it with Katrina. Mm. You put those two pieces together because in the shutdown, you not only had the inability to perform work in certain circumstances, but you also had work that was, there were questions about funding availability and so forth. In this case, the funding's not the issue. The issue is strictly the ability to perform. And so, but some of the effects are going to be the same. So if I'm on a time and materials contract, um, we only get paid um, for the hours that my, our team works Any for any company. That's what they're looking at. And for if it's a week or two, then they probably can muddle through like they would in a shutdown, mm -hmm. uh, then figure out a way down the road with their customer to figure out how to, 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 to make everybody whole, because you don't have an appropriations limitation like you would in a shutdown. Um, but there, so there are similarities in terms of impact, but you have this, this sort of added layer, obviously, of the pandemic. And I think, while I'm not a lawyer, that adds some degree of rationalization of, well, we simply can't come to work. We're being told not to come to work. So what are we gonna do in the long term? If this lasts three or four weeks, how much overtime can you do? I mean, how do you actually make up the work 
not only to make sure the mission gets accomplished, but to make sure that people are not left holding the bag at the, on the back end, whether they're federal employees or contractors or anybody else. It's interesting, too, because you, you say if this lasts a month, we're starting to see indicators from private sector organizations, sports leagues, and others that are indicating they're thinking more like maybe six weeks to two months, school systems closing uh, until well into April and that kind of thing. So this is definitely it seems to be something that isn't a short-term solution and that people should be thinking longer term. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and like you said earlier, it's, it's, there's so many unknown unknowns here. So a lot of people can work remotely. The question is for how long can you work remotely without some other engagement? My guess is in some cases it's relatively infinite. I mean, <laughs> this could actually turn around a recent trend the last couple of years in federal agencies where they've tried to sort of tamp back on telework. Um, so we're going to learn a lot with that. But there's an awful lot of work that cannot be performed completely remotely. And so what happens is you really start getting into a longer term. So that, yes, there's all these unknowns. And, and I think the real key message and, and really the way I look at it is there's no, there's, 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 there's no one guidebook here. You, you, you referenced the shutdown. We can think about Katrina. There's a combination of things, but everybody has to come into this with the recognition that it is a common challenge that there are, uh, there's outside of anybody's control. And now we just got to figure this out in a very fair and equitable way. And some companies will not, perhaps uh, achieve some of the, the financial goals that they have set. The government will not get all of its entirely, all of its mission performed, but they've got to work together to figure out a way to make sure that the, the damage is minimized. And so we've learned lessons. We've learned lessons, Stan, from all of these issues. We've learned lessons from Katrina. We've learned lessons from the shutdowns. What do you think leaders, both on the government side and on the contracting side should be paying attention to throughout this process to learn lessons from this. Maybe one of the lessons that comes out is telework isn't so bad after all, and we are as productive or almost as productive via telework as we are having people in the office. What are some of the other markers that you think people should watch? So there's, there's I, I, I come up with two things. One, when you talk about um, telework, I, I think everybody has continuity of operation plans, group planning. So there are plans in place for short-term exigencies. If this goes on longer, that becomes a question. And, and I don't know that we've been down that path before in any, at any really long period of time. If you think on the shutdown, all the national security functions, all of the essential uh, operations of government proceeded uh, without interruption because of the way Congress and the administrations have dealt with shutdowns. But I think that's one issue. To me, the number one biggest thing is, and, I, and this is gonna maybe sound a little bit simplistic, but the number one single thing is the degree and quality of communications, both within companies and within agencies and then between them. Uh, the ability to really have conversations with your contracting officers, with your customers, and coordinate and collaborate from day one, rather than waiting till the very end of the, of the process to look back and then figure out what did we or did we not accomplish. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I would say, and this is something we used to hammer a lot, and I know you've had David Berto on, he probably talked about this, document, document, document. There are going to be disagreements. It's inevitable when something like this happens. So when after the fact, when there are equitable adjustments and there are other things going on to try to rationalize everything, you've got to have really, really good documentation. It just facilitates a better conversation. Stan, thanks very much as always. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Stay safe. Our coverage of the impact of the coronavirus on the federal marketplace continues at 8 and 11 every night this week on WJLA 24-7 News. And we want to hear from you. You can email us your questions to info at govmatters.tv or tweet us at govmatters.tv. Up next, a look at the top trends in government contracting. 
Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you need to know about what's next in government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The Agriculture Department will get IT services from Accenture Federal Services as part of the agency's blanket purchase agreement for IT. To look at the top trends in government contracting, Michael Fox, Managing Director and Head of Federal Sales at Accenture. Michael, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. It's what are some of the big trends that you're seeing in doing business with the government right now? Well, I think, as you know, it's all about speed. Mm -hmm. and. Um, and the government is focused on getting the most innovative uh, commercial technologies into the hands of government users and the warfighter as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. so, so they're changing their acquisition approaches. Uh, they're streamlining those approaches to, uh, to be able to move through the procurement process much quicker. Mm -hmm. the, the speed in the acquisition process has been a challenge right. for as long as any of us have paid attention <laughs> to the government contracting space. What are you seeing that's making a difference just in the acquisition process, not in the desire for agencies to gain innovation more quickly, but what are acquisition people doing to give that speed that their mission people want? Right, so I think we're at a tipping point. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have been in the last year or two. And so you see them adopting acquisition processes like uh, other transaction agreements. Mm -hmm. You see them using um, tech challenges. Um, so uh, where they actually invite uh, a contractor in instead of writing a lengthy proposal and then taking the time it, it usually takes to review those proposals mm -hmm. to actually hand us a, a challenge on the spot and ask us to demonstrate uh, how we would solve their problem. So those processes are, are, are really speeding up um, the whole acquisition. Is that good for industry too? Does that quicker turnaround time make industry do something different? than it used to do before that results in a, a better outcome for you too? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it costs mm -hmm. <laughs> to compete for business uh, with the government. And so the longer the process, uh, the more it costs us, um, the more investment we have to make uh, mm -hmm. in terms of time and effort. Um, so, um, and, and, and you know, technology is moving very quickly now. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so it's important for us to be able to um, follow through uh, on what we're proposing to the client as quickly as we can. It seems that that's the biggest challenge too in technology procurement in particular. Procurement cycle is a lot longer than the technology cycle is. That didn't used to be the case. Right. What is industry's role, do you think, in helping agencies understand that and in helping them facilitate that so that they're asking for outcomes rather than asking for specific things that they wind up getting six months too late, a year too late, right. two years too late. Right. Yeah, so so it's incumbent on industry that we bring the best to, to them. I think too often in the past the industry has sort of st stood back mm -hmm. and waited for um, uh, our clients to tell us what they needed, what their challenges were, um, what technology they thought was most appropriate. Uh, now, um, you know, they're looking to commercial best practices, they're looking to more innovative technologies like cloud, AI, cybersecurity, and so we have to lean in. 
I mean, we have to be uh, with our clients, helping educate them mm -hmm. on what the art of the possible is um, and how they can best solve their most challenging problems. You mentioned this interest in commercial technology at the yeah. beginning of our mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. What's driving that? Because when I started in this space 12 or 15 years ago, that was nowhere on the radar screen, I don't think. Yeah, I think maybe government paid lip service mm -hmm. to wanting commercial technology back mm -hmm. three or four years. Um, I think the fact that technology is moving so quick, uh, I, you know, we have uh, an engagement with an Air Force client mm -hmm. who recognized right off the bat that they needed to move at a much faster speed and they could not operate the way they've been operating in the past. So if you look at commercial technology, at the commercial industry, um, they engage with industry in a much more open fashion. Uh, there isn't that kind of wall that sometimes you see between a government and, and industry, uh, so that you can have that kind of uh, uh, that kind of frequent conversation. There's that level of transparency, and then um, the recognition that that technology and, and how commercial uh, um, industry has gone to market is appropriate to solving uh, many of the, the government's uh, biggest problems. We've so. talked about what you and your colleagues in industry can do to make the process and life easier for the government. Mm -hmm. What can the government do to get better results to make it easier for you to work with them? Well, I think it's what I was just referring to, is mm -hmm. that open, transparent communication. Mm -hmm. um, believe it or not, I mean, there are still pockets, big pockets throughout government where they believe that they cannot talk to industry before, because if there's going to be a procurement coming out, mm -hmm. even well before they plan on putting out a, a formal procurement. And so as a result, there is this kind of virtual wall between us. And so they throw their requirements over the wall. We you know, propose back how we'd solve their problem. They ask us a series of questions to clarify. We guess at their questions. Next thing you know, we're really talking past each mm -hmm. other. So. Uh, we find that when you bring that wall down and that you, uh, right from the beginning, you have that, that open communication, we can cut past all of that and we can really get to solutions much quicker. We have about 30 seconds left. That would be a tremendous disappointment to our friend Dan Gordon, who used to be the head of the Federal Procurement Policy Office, who started a Mythbusters campaign mm. up to that very point, yes. headed toward 10 years ago. Yeah. Is, the, is it getting better? Absolutely. It is getting better. Absolutely, Mike. absolutely. I, I refer to this um, uh, contract we have with the Air Force. Right from the beginning, um, we sat like we're sitting, and, and they were very transparent about what their needs were. Um, they, uh, we were able to share with them how we'd approach their problem. We collectively, around the table, drafted the requirement, you know, the PWS, the performance work statement. Uh, we negotiated face-to-face, uh, -face, and as a result, they're getting capability into the field much faster than they would have before. Michael Fox of Accenture, thanks very much. Absolutely. Up next, funding research and development for defense. Straight ahead on Government Matters, shifting spending to keep America's edge over its competitors. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The new budget proposal from the White House includes $106.6 billion for research, development, test, and evaluation efforts. The defense industrial base has lots of questions about how that money aligns with defense priorities. Tara Murphy-Doherty is chief executive officer at Gavini. Tara, thanks for coming on the program. What are you looking at in particular regarding the R&E budget? Thanks for having me, Francis. It's great to be here. We are particularly interested in investments that DOD is making in emerging technologies. I think this is going to be one of the areas where the department can contribute most from the perspective of implementing some of the core tenets of the national defense strategy. And we know that in order to improve our position vis-a-vis -vis China in particular in this era of great power competition, we know that emerging technologies are a really uh, important area for us to make progress. I noted in some of the most recent work that you did that you talk primarily about the relationship and spending between the United States and China. You mentioned the national defense strategy, great power competition. Russia's in there too. Why not as much focus on Russia and what do we know about where Russia is in R&D spending? Yeah, so we recently re released a report, Gavini did, uh, that looked specifically at historical trends in uh, the department's R&D funding, particularly in the context, as you mentioned, of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And the focus on China really comes from both the threat assessment and within the R&D landscape, the significant in, uh, increase in China's moves in, these area, in this area. And so maybe some context is helpful here. We went back to 1967 uh, and compared defense spend, I'm sorry, R&D spending at that point in time, where the Department of Defense matched uh, the R&D investments of the entire Soviet Union in that year. Today, we have found that China is on track to outpace us as an entire country, not just as a department. And in 2017, um, China overall was about at parity from R&D investments with the United States. DOD, in particular, has fallen from a high of 19% R&D investments, representing 19% of global research and development investments, down to about 4%. So you can see a dramatic shift in a comparison between our two countries and how the department is positioned within that. And you simply don't see that sort of outpacing uh, in the Russia side. You write in this work that U.S. R&D spending is primarily focused on the D piece of that, on the development piece and not as much on the research. What's the significance of that, Tara? Yeah, so, you know, that's a mixed story. On the one hand, that D piece is really important, and we think it's a really positive move that DOD is putting an increasing amount of effort and focus into operationalizing some of these early S&T and research efforts. Uh, that's critical in order for the United States to not just succeed in this competition, but also to ensure that the department is, is effectively building up capacity and capability to project military power today and in the future. Uh, what we're seeing on the flip side, however, is some of that increase is coming at the expense of that S&T funding. So specifically across the budget accounts of 6.1, 6.2, 6.3, which really represent that early stage research, uh, we're seeing a decline from fiscal year 2020 into the fiscal year 2021 budget. And that's a little bit concerning. I would think that overall, uh, this area is so important and so important to our modernization efforts as a defense industry. I'd, I'd really rather see uh, no loss on either side.
what are you taking away from this the discussion that's happened in industry over the past 5, 10, 15 years, especially the last five, though, where the Pentagon has basically said to industry, we would like you to do the R&D, and industry has said back to the department, we're happy to do that if we have some sense that there's an ROI there. Now it looks like the Pentagon's willing to at least consider taking some of that back. What does that make a trend line look like? It's kind of, it strikes me that it's hard for maybe either side to figure out what comes next. I think that's true. And I think that's part of the reason that watching the data is so important in this, because otherwise there's a real lack of visibility into what's happening. And we risk being in a scenario of making assumptions on either side that one, either government or industry is being a leader in this area. I, I think the numbers that we cited earlier show that the United States runs the risk overall of no longer being a global R&D leader. And so I think it's important for DOD and uh, the defense industry to, to crystallize who exactly is doing what and how they're going to leverage comparative advantage and share information. And then I think the final piece of that is making sure that DOD is following through on its commitment to work in increasing amount with the national security innovation base. Um, and not just our traditional defense contractor community. They make tremendous contributions to the industry, but it, it and that collaboration is necessary, but we know today that it's also insufficient. Tara, less than 30 seconds left. For people who care about this, is the budget number, the raw number, the only thing to follow, or is where the money goes and where the money lives part of the issue too? Definitely, it's part of the issue. I would say that one of the most effective things that we can do to drive high ROI in, in this area is to watch where the money actually flows. We know what the strategic intent is. We need to make sure we're following through. Tara, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.